everyone. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Strong Reception with Eli James. We've got an election coming up. Duh. And today I want to address what I think is a super important question that often gets ignored each election season. Many of us who are in New York and maybe elsewhere, as we look over our absentee ballots or our sample ballots, we can see that in addition to having to elect the president, congressional reps, state senate and assembly members, we're also being asked to elect judges to our state supreme court and county courts. Now, if you're in Brooklyn like me, the judges are on the flip side of your ballot and you're being asked to select six New York state supreme court justices who will serve 14-year terms. That's a long time for people making big decisions for vulnerable people who are in need of help. Uh, Some of these judge candidates are running on multiple party lines, like, for instance, Carolyn Wade, who evidently is running as a Democrat, a Republican, and a conservative party candidate. So how do you pick a judge in this election? There's precious little info about them online, except for their boilerplate bios on the New York court system's website and maybe a random news story or two about a specific case. Moreover, how do these judges get on the ballot? They don't run in our primaries, and they don't run campaigns. Well, the answer is, they're chosen by the leaders of your local parties. Under state law, local party delegates nominate the judges. The local party delegates also nominate the commissioners to our Board of Elections, who are almost assuredly approved by the city council, even if they have no experience running elections. The local party leaders also nominate candidates to run in special elections. And so, as was the case this spring in the race for my city council district in Brooklyn, a handful of party leaders essentially picked the candidate, picked the election commissioners who knocked that candidate's competitors off the ballot, and picked the appellate justices who eventually kept that candidate's competitors off the ballot. So here to help us understand all this, and at least help us vote consciously in this election, is Jarrett Murphy, the executive editor of CityLimits.org, a long-standing investigative journalism website that focuses on New York City with an eye for reform and social justice issues. Jarrett has been writing for City Limits for 13 years and has won numerous awards, including the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, the Pass Award from the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, and the Deadline Club's Award for Best coverage of issues affecting minority groups. He recently posted an article titled, Oh Yeah, the Judges, a quick guide to NYC's 2020 judicial ballot, which he co-authored with Dayun Park, in which he lists all of the judges running this November election in our city and why it's important to pay attention to them. Jared, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I guess my first question is, how do you think voters should approach this opaque judge picking process? I think, first of all, they they should approach it. I mean, I think it's you know all too common for us to think about the top of the ticket, as you mentioned in this race, is the presidential race, and others it might be the governor or the mayor, mm-hmm. uh, and think less and less uh, about some of the lower offices, whether it's Congress or state legislature, and then you get to those other names at the end of the ballot, and you you barely know what the offices are about, let alone the candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the primary, that's mostly, you know, party positions like district leader. But in the general election, it is these judicial posts. And I think, you know, especially now with the ability to use some of the tools that the Board of Election provides to see your sample ballot ahead of time, obviously, many of us this particular year are getting a mail-in ballot. So we actually have it in front of us right now, or we so- soon will. I think mm-hmm. that's a chance to... Um, to do some research, because as you mentioned, 
you know, it's a, these are pretty important offices. You know, we, we care, hopefully, about who's going to serve us in Congress for two years at a time. These are offices that might be 10 or 14 years, depending on which judgeship they're running from, uh, running for, I should say. Um, so I think just taking that as a serious thing is, is important. Um, I think it's difficult to get a lot of information. We did do a judicial voter's guide. So there are some sources. Um, basic internet searches, searches can work. Uh, sometimes the state does put together a voter's guide where people are sent questionnaires and some number of candidates respond. They did not do that this year. Uh, but there are methods out there. I think a little information is probably better than none at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's funny because uh, when I look at my ballot, for example, and this would you know just ap- apply to Brooklyn, uh, I'm sure it would be ex- could be extrapolated to other districts. Um, it, it asks me to pick any six of a bunch of state Supreme Court candidates. And I looked at it and at first glance, there's only six candidates mm-hmm. running. Uh, some of them are running on multiple party lines, which I want to you know, make sure we get into as well, even briefly, just to explain why and how they're running on Democratic and Republican and conservative party lines in some cases. And then I saw at a closer example, I didn't notice this until I read your article, that there was actually a seventh name listed uh, for my Supreme Court Judicial District, but they weren't on their own line. They were kind of tucked away and hidden. A candidate named Beth Parlato, uh, who apparently was running for Congress up in Buffalo, hundreds of miles from here. Yes, that's right. And then because of New York State's very weird election ballot laws and fusion laws, she she lost narrowly, I believe, in a special election, was it, for mm-hmm. Congress? That's right. Or I think it might have been a primary earlier this year. I forget exactly where it was. But yes, uh, she she lost that race. But then there is this function in in state law that uh, I think what happened was she, she lost the Republican primary for a congressional race. But she had the conservative party line and mm-hmm. the conservative party wanted to give that line, I think, to the person who won that Republican primary. And once someone has a line, the only way you can get them off is if you nominate them for something else. Right. So that's why even though she, as you said, lives from lives hundreds of miles away and has nothing to do with your area of the world, uh, she is on the ballot. Right. And that is so that the the incumbent Republican running for Congress in that area, uh, which I, it's Chris Jacobs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so she won't accidentally siphon off votes from his race against the Democrat. That's correct. And probably bolster his his case against the Democrats. Exactly. So now, I mean, and this is just one example, but we've got now a, a, a woman who qualified or not uh, interested in Brooklyn's population or not. She she is on the ballot running as a Republican and conservative party candidate. And this was enabled by the heads of the Republican and conservative parties in Brooklyn. They said, oh, we'll figure out a way to get her off the ballot in Buffalo. We'll nominate her for a judgeship in Brooklyn. And when you accept a judgeship, uh, you when you accept a judgeship nomination, you can get off the ballot somewhere else. That's right. That's exactly what happened. Yes. Who? Yeah. And what's interesting, of course, is you mentioned that at first you thought you had a chance to vote for six candidates among six candidates. And it is interesting, you actually do have, I guess, some kind of a choice there. But in many cases, uh, voters don't at all. They have candidates who are, you know, in a case you have to vote for one, you have one candidate, but you have to vote Mm -hmm. for two, you have two candidates. You know, it might look at first glance like you have more choices because some of those candidates will, as you mentioned, be nominated on multiple party lines. 
Um, but still, I think in most of the judicial races that will be decided uh, two weeks from now on November 3rd, I think the voters have only the bare minimum of of, of candidates to choose from, uh, mm-hmm. which obviously, yeah, of course, I should say, as long as we're you know delving into the nitty gritty of the ballot, that does not mean those are your only choices. If you, you could not vote for that office, obviously, you could vote for the people who are presented or you could write someone in. And that is a, right. a valid thing to do. And there are candidates who do semi-organized or organized write-in campaigns and amass a number of votes. And sometimes that sends a signal to people that there's some level of dissent. Uh, mm-hmm. I've I voted for uh, a, two very competent and intelligent friends of mine in the Bronx have been written in for a number of offices here by me okay. over the years because I hate voting for someone when they are nominated on every party. That seems kind of weird to me. Um, yeah. So it can be done. Can we... Uh... Can we talk about that uh, for a minute about sure. the fusion fusion voting in New York? And New York State is one of the few states that actually practices fusion voting, um, which enables people to run on multiple party lines. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure, about, be happy uh, to. You know, yeah. like I mentioned, Carolyn Wade uh, just as one of the seven people running for state supreme court in Brooklyn, who is listed as a Democrat, listed as a Republican, and re- listed as this conservative party candidate. So, does that mean that they are that she is endorsed by all of those parties? That's correct. Yes, uh, she has gotten the line from each of those parties. They have to consent uh, to that. Um, and it is, uh, all over the judicial, judicial ballot this year, there are candidates who are, uh, cross nominated, not just by democratic and say working families where there often is a fusion relationship or Republican conservative, but one judge who's running in, let's see, where is she in the 13th judicial district? I'm not exactly sure where that is. Lisa Gray, she's on democratic, Republican, conservative, and, um, serve America movement, which is this new party that's kind of popped up, um, it is something that happens in a lot of races in New York, judicial and otherwise. You will sometimes see camp people, even for like the legislature, who are going to caucus as a Democrat, nominated on all the lines. Um, it is, uh, I guess, uh, a way of securing power. It's a way of, uh, uh, you know, maintaining influence. Um, why the lesser parties do it? Sometimes it helps them with with ballot status, although it typically is decided by people who are higher up on the ticket. Um, I guess in judges' races, I mean, it it bothers me, the idea of someone being supported by all these parties because it's like there's no reason to have the parties at all. I think a judge might make the argument that, look, they are supposed to be nonpartisan anyway. If they're a high-quality jurist, you would expect them hopefully to get the support of many different parties, and that would be their line, I think. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe it is quite different. And I think it's that, you know, people are not voters not being given um, choices. And, and it largely reflects in New York City, I think, the um, incredible weakness of the Republican Party um, okay. that, you know, they simply do not field candidates in a lot of races. I mean, if you were to look at the larger ballot this year, I think you'd be shocked citywide at how many people are running for state assembly and even state senate. Um, with no opponent at all, not even mm-hmm. a third party one, and no one from the Republican Party. It happens in dozens of races each year, and it's the case this year as well. Just a total lack of ability to even put someone up to, you know, provide some sort of uh, other option for voters. It's, um, I think, an indictment of a few different things, um, but it's certainly for someone who believes in democracy at its at its fundamental level, um, it's fairly disturbing. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, I have got a number of uh, unopposed Democrats uh, running in a number of uh, races on my ballot as well. Um, and yeah, I, anytime there's just a lack of competition, I, I don't think that's very good for our democracy. No, true. And I think, you know, one of the things, it, it all kind of feeds on itself, uh, Eli, because what what someone would say, you know, if, if you go to one of the people who has run kind of a quixotic campaign in a majority Democratic district and they have run as a Republican just to give that other option, to give some competition, mm-hmm. um, what they'll tell you is that, you know, it feels very much like an empty exercise. They don't, they're unable to raise very much money. Um, there is nothing in the way of like a debate or some way for them to get their message right. out. There's no public financing uh, that's going to permit them, at least at this point, to um, to get their message out or try to compete. Um, so it really becomes just a symbolic effort and that, you know, is difficult for people to want to mount. Um, so I think it's, it is both a symptom and cause, I think, of larger weaknesses in our democracy that mm-hmm. there is so little ability to compete um, because of the money, because of democratic registration advantage, um, yeah. that uh, that people see very re- little reason to try. I was looking at uh, what the qualifications are to run for Supreme Court justices and county court judges uh, in New York State, and the the, the 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 restrictions don't seem to be that stringent to be qualified. Um, you have to be a state resident. In the case of a county judge, uh, you also have to be a county resident of the. Um, where the court is, where you're running. You have to have had at least 10 years of in-state law practice experience, be at least 18 years old, and be under the age of 70. Um, It says retirement at 70 is mandatory, but it turns out there's a major uh, caveat to that. You can Mm -hmm. keep serving after you turn 70 um, for two years at a time uh, if if you're approved by uh, the New York City City Bar Association. And you can serve until you are 76.44 years old, apparently. (laughs) A Uh, birthday everyone celebrates. I (laughs) wonder how – yeah, I was just wondering, hmm, how did that one come up? Um, which person was like, uh, well, I'm 76.42, so let's make it 4-4. Right, right. Um, but like in, say in the case of, of the Beth Parlato situation we were talking about, because she's been nominated for Supreme Court and not County Court, she only has to be a state resident mm-hmm. to accept a judicial nomination. She doesn't have to even reside in the county. Um, and once you become a Supreme Court justice, if you win that seat, you then, uh, become eligible to be appointed by the governor for the next rung up on the state court system, which is the appellate division. That's right. Yes. So, yeah, in New York State and New York City, there is a mix of appointed judges. You know, Mayor de Blasio has the right, as other mayors have, to appoint some um, city judges, criminal court judges and, and others, I think some family court judges, too. Okay. And then there are the, this large pool of elected judges. And then it's from that pool of elected judges that the governor can appoint people to all the uh, higher courts, all the appeals courts. So yeah, it is it is a you know a way into the system. And what you'll notice is that many of the people who are running for judge now actually serve as an acting judge in a few different judges. They might have right. a post uh, in Brooklyn, but also be um, an acting judge on an appeals panel. They might have some time in family court. Um, and so yeah, it's a it's a you know, and also you're talking about a ten or fourteen year term. Um, you know, that's a, a very long time. And mm-hmm. especially given the likelihood of being reelected, uh, it doesn't mean that you're probably going to influence people's lives for decades, maybe longer than any other elected official. 
the interesting point about qualifications is if you think about it, um, being a judge requires some level of expertise. And so there, I think you do see the requirement of having uh, 10 years of law practice in the state, which yeah. is obviously more than is required for any other office, you know, for state senator, for governor. I, I'm not even sure exactly if there's an age requirement, but there's a citizenship and residency requirement, and probably that you'd be free of any felony convictions, at least within some time period. But other than that, I think generally our qualifications for office are pretty de minimis, and that's probably not a bad thing. That's probably a democratic instinct to make sure that we don't create you know, arbitrary obstacles to people serving their community. Um, so I think you're probably going to find that, you know, at least officially, there are going to be um, limited criteria. What's interesting about the judge race is that, is that eventually the Bar Association will release, if they haven't already, and I don't think they have, an indication of whether they find the people who are running to be qualified or not qualified. Um, sometimes they also give like a special gold star and say you're highly qualified. Mm. Um, I haven't explored whether or not those that vetting is a very stringent process, but right. every year there are some candidates who are deemed to be not qualified, many of them still win. Um, but that is kind of like the good housekeeping seal of approval is what the bar says. People who you would think have some experience and can evaluate, you know, whether someone's experience as a lawyer and whether their performance warrants them giving a chance to decide other people's cases. And is the New York Bar, New York City Bar Association considered to be a, a, a neutral actor, a, an objective actor? In, I think in so. I think I think so. I mean, I think they obviously are part of the legal um, community. And so, you know, if you were suspicious of the establishment, you'd be suspicious of them. But I think that, you know, given the fact that they they do pretty strenuously stay nonpartisan, um, they do a lot of careful consideration of legal issues. They have several committees that operate year round to mm-hmm. explore policy issues around the law whether it's uh, practice or the profession itself or the actual statutes. So, yeah, I think they'd be fairly well respected. I certainly, when I'm going to the ballot booth here in the Bronx to decide who to vote for, I pay attention to what they say. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. Um, So one thing that voters could do, I think, is go on the New York City Bar Association's website and and plug in a judge's name, I think. Is that, does that still exist? Uh, it might be search by name or it might be just a list. Uh, but either way, once it is available, I think that it will be pretty easy to find. And, you know, we have this judicial voters guide in citylimits.org and we will add that information as soon as it's uh, made publicly available. Okay. And so when I'm faced with a decision of a judge who is, because New York has fusion voting and candidates can run on these multiple party lines, um, how do you... Should I be wary of someone who is running on all three party on all of those party lines? I think I'm wary of the practice. I'm not sure if I'd be wary of individual people. If the practice mm-hmm. bothers you, then it bothers you. You may decide to not vote. You may decide to write that person in, um, mm-hmm. and therefore kind of like you know exempt yourself from the party choices. You might write someone else in. You might select a different candidate. I think it is so common uh, for it to be done. And I think many candidates, um, they may not even actively seek those lines that may be offered to them. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure the mechanism person to person. And obviously, why would you turn a line down? Um, I wouldn't necessarily have that be like a dispositive uh, issue for me. Um, You know, it it arches an eyebrow a little bit, but I think I would, I find that to be more disturbing when we're talking about um, policymaking positions like a senator or a assembly person or a congress member. Uh, right. Then it would disturb me that someone is, you know, on on all those different party lines. 
I think if I was running for something and I, which I don't plan on doing, but like, I don't think I, the, the downside to me of accepting multiple party lines would be like, I don't want to keep confusing constituents because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't, don't understand why it is this way. Yes, I, I think that's a consideration. I suspect that when you are running for judge, you recognize that very few people are going to walk into that booth with any idea of who they want to vote for, except for, you know, there are, there is there is one race, I should say, this November 3rd, it apparently is actually pretty tightly contested. And there is a clear difference, I think, in candidates that's um, on Staten Island, uh, a judge race between Alan Crawford and Ron Castorino, who's a former assembly member. Okay. Um, but for them, and, and so there, there'll be like mailings and posters and there'd be people outside the polls handing out palm cards. But for the mm-hmm. most part, people are walking to the booths with very little idea of who they want to vote for. They're probably just going to tack down the party line um, or vote for the first name. Um, and so I think that, you know, people are probably assuming that having many, that many voters are not going to pay attention to whether you're on multiple lines, that if anyone votes for you, and there is a significant fall off, I should say, in the number of voters who even participate in those races, because some voters, I think, and it's it's actually a quite defensible instinct, if they don't know about the office, if they don't know about the candidates, they don't vote. So you will right. often see that the people in the same district uh, who are running for judge will get fewer votes than the candidates for the higher offices where people are more educated. So yeah. some folks, folks don't vote at all. Um, and those that do probably aren't paying in a, a, that much attention to uh, whether someone's on multiple lines and what that means. Um, it does, I should say cause some confusion when it comes to how the ballot is actually structured. There was one race this year that has a vote for nine. I think this is in Brooklyn somewhere. Or No, sorry, maybe in Queens. Okay. Um, it's vote for nine, and you have um, more than nine candidates, and some of those candidates are in multiple party lines, so it can be a little confusing. Um, it does mean that you can vote for nine people um, in any party you want, um, and you don't have to worry about the geometry of the ballot. But it does cause some problems for ballot designers um in terms of making it clear where people's choices are yeah because uh there's there new york is known for 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 tossing out a lot of ballots that have sort of mistakes on them that are made out of confusion totally and that's something that you know new york was late to comply with the help america vote act which was the federal law passed after the 2000 presidential election debacle okay when it did finally comply and that's where the electronic voting machines came from one of the selling points was that it would you know uh not eliminate, but sharply reduce the number of undervotes or overvotes or uncounted votes. Uh, it has reduced that, I believe, but it's still kind of shocking to me when I look at the results after several months and they've been certified, just how many ballots are discounted in these races. It's it's often many thousands, probably not enough to change the outcome in most districts, but still crazy that so many votes are thrown out because the ballot was improperly made out or the machine improperly read it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good reason I should say to voters, like, you, you know, everyone, will, if people are voting in person, whether it's early voting or on election day, um, hopefully, you know, wearing a mask and doing social distancing, mm-hmm. the tendency is to obviously, like, f- fill out your thing, go to the machine, put it in, and then take off. But make sure that the machine indicates that it's been properly read, because it can sometimes kick it back if there's a problem. And you might have to go do another ballot if you've, like, made a stray mark. It's you know, if you've taken the time to vote, it's worth sticking around to make sure it got counted. That's good. To, that's good to get out there. Yeah. Um, I just want to briefly touch on, 
I don't know if you saw this New York Times article yesterday about a report from a special advisor on equal justice in the New York State courts that was commissioned by the top judge in New York State, uh, Chief Judge Janet DeFiore. Uh, she had commissioned a, a special advisor to look into discrimination and uh the the uh, investigator just turned up so many startling int- instances of prejudice and, and hate-filled behavior toward people of color from officers of the court and judges throughout the state judiciary. And one of the one of the issues that the report uncovered was uh, a lack of diversity among judges. Mm-hmm. Uh, the article the report. Article says that uh, even in New York, a city where more than half of the residents are black or Hispanic, only a quarter of criminal court judges are people of color. Someone they interviewed mentioned that the electoral process tends to marginalize black and Hispanic candidates. And the this nominating process we're talking about, which starts with the party leadership where they nominate people to run, um, and how easily those people tend to get through with the backing of the party. It causes candidates of color to be bypassed or discouraged by party leadership, particularly in upstate counties. Mm-hmm. I just want to see if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it has been a few years since I spent a lot of time in the courts, but there was a time when I spent a lot, mainly on the criminal side, um, observing uh, arraignments and trials. And Certainly those points that you've made, Joe, with my experience, that Mm. most of the judges uh, were white. Uh, On the ballot this year, you do see some other names. There's uh, a Negron. I think there's a Rivera or two. Um, There are some, obviously, some black judges on on the bench and some among the candidates this year. But it certainly does not seem to be in keeping with the population proportions in the city. Beyond that, I think that the atmosphere in courts, especially on the criminal side, is is just is can be deeply, deeply inhumane. Um, and I think when you combine that system with the fact that the people coming through seeking justice or facing justice as people who've been arrested tend to be people of color, um, the you know, the, the, the source of the problem is pretty clear. Hmm. Uh, and I certainly saw, you know, tremendous uh, cruelty to um, to families of color who were waiting to see someone who was uh, going to be uh, arraigned or to defendants who, you know, um, upset the officer. Uh, you know, that, that certainly does exist. And I think that, you know, it's it's interesting to see that report because it goes to the culture of the court system. It's not the police we're talking about. It's not prisons mm-hmm. or jails, which we focused on a lot. It's the courts themselves, their operation uh, and that's an interesting area of the justice system that hasn't received as much attention. And I think now the question will be, you know, how do you change that culture? Because the courthouse culture is is very, very deeply enmeshed. And you can feel it when you're there. It's a little clubby. Um, hmm. There's people dealing with uh, jobs that are frankly often not rewarding and, and sometimes involve, you know, seeing some of the worst elements of humanity or some of the most tragic events in our city played before them. And this is a way, I think, beyond racism and other things of coping with that. Dealing with that culture will be the next step. Uh, The report is great. I can't wait to see what the chief judge or others suggest for how to change it. Yeah. Do you you think judges um, should be elected? And if so, is there a better way to do it? If not, is there a fair way to appoint them? That just maximizes fairness in this. That's a great question. I think that um, I remember a, a great 
a great book everyone should read is is the book Burr by Gore Vidal. And in that, Aaron Burr, who is this great character, um, talks with alarm about the possibility of an elected judiciary. And what frightens him about it is that all these masses, all these new people, immigrants and whatnot, will be able to decide who um, who runs their justice system. And that was terrifying to Burr. Um, but to the rest of us, it might kind of actually speak to some deep democratic principles. Um, I think that for an elected judiciary to work, uh, it has to work better. I think that there's, it's, it's, I think a, a good thing that there's democratic control of our judicial system because it, it too is part of our democracy. I think we would need to have some reforms for that to function as it was initially envisioned um, mm-hmm. to make the elections more visible, to make them more competitive um, you know, people will be interested in the idea of nonpartisan elections. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, that would solve some problems, I suppose, but but not others. I think the bigger thing is to create a mechanism for, you know, putting these people before the public and giving people a chance to examine them. Um, the fact mm-hmm. is that many people will go, even in this presidential race, and vote for the party that they voted for all their lives. Right. And that's going to extend again across all races. There are always some people who are going to not educate themselves as voters, and that's their that's their right. Um, I think what you need to do is create a system where people who do want to educate themselves or who have some nominal interest in that have a chance of doing that. Every city election, every voter is mailed a voter's guide for primary and general that explains who the candidates are and tells you at least a little bit about their background and their positions. Um, why that can't be done for judicial races, I don't know. It's a simple enough step, costs a little money, but that's the kind of thing you have to do is just more information. Yeah. And I think more information might mean, mean more competitive races. And then you might have people running on all these different party lines who are actually separate candidates if the uh, public attention and the possibility for competitors to have some success is is um, advantaged by spreading more information about these races. Mm-hmm. Was there a, a mailed voter guide sent out this year? Because I didn't get one. No, that is a city thing. It's done by the Campaign Finance Board. Right. It's linked to the public financing of campaigns as public financing takes hold on the state level. We might see that. I don't know if it's in the plans, but you know, it's a very handy thing that the CFB does to mail it. It's also online. Mm-hmm. They also run the debates. Um, all of that could potentially be part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and I think that's that's the way we would need to go if you want to make these races actual elections. And on that note, we'll uh, wrap up. Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks. It's a pleasure. And I also want to plug your uh, your podcast, which I forgot to do earlier, which is uh, Max and Murphy. It's a really great podcast that uh, Jarrett co-hosts with Ben Max, who is the chief editor of Gotham Gazette. And they really break down a lot of, of how our city politics our, our political system in New York City works and how it affects everyday New Yorkers. And they interview a lot of, of candidates and people who uh, it, it would do you well to get to know. So thanks for your time, Jarrett. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to my conversation with Jarrett Murphy, executive editor at citylimits.org. If you live in New York State, your last day to request an absentee ballot is October 27th, which you can do at vote.nyc. The last day to postmark your absentee ballot is Election Day, November 3rd. And remember that in-person voting is also an option. 
with a mask and six-foot distancing required, and starts this weekend, Saturday, October 24th, and runs through the following Sunday, November 1st. When you go to vote.nyc, you can enter your address to see where your early voting site is, which is very likely to be a different place than your election day polling site on November 3rd. And you'll be able to see the hours of your polling place, which will be different on each day. You can also take your absentee ballot and drop it off into a drop box at any early voting site or election day polling place. And if I may suggest, please find out what you can about your local elected office holders. Go to the state legislature's website and find out their names, if you don't know already, because they have the power to change the way we run our elections. If you think the way we pick judges in this state is unfair, if you think the way we pick election commissioners in this state is unfair, please send a message to your state assembly member or state senator. I know it's a lot of work to be an informed voter, which is unfortunately by design, but informing ourselves is the only way we can start to change things for the better. This has been Strong Reception with Eli James. You can subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your pod stuff. I've got more great interviews lined up. Oh, I've got a really good one about music history coming up that you're not going to want to miss. And if you want to check out my blog, uh, please go to votinginthedark.com. Either way, I'll see you next time. Be well.